artificial intelligence, quantum computing, nanotechnology, the internet of things, blockchains, neuroscience, biotech. We live in a world of rapid technological development. Frontiers are being pushed further and further at a faster and faster pace. And there's a broad consensus that in a military context, the way we fight and the environments we fight in will change as a result. But that's where the consensus stops. We don't yet know the degree to which war will change. But success in future wars might turn out to hinge on our exploration of those questions today. That's what we do in this episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, Editorial Director at MWI, and to take a look into the future of warfare, I'm joined by two guests. Hi, I'm David Fastabend. I'm a retired Army officer. Hi, I'm Ian Sullivan. I'm the Assistant G2 uh, here at TRADOC for ISR and Futures. General Fastabend and Mr. Sullivan have done some fascinating work on this topic in conjunction with the Army's Training and Doctrine Command. They were also both involved in producing two pretty important papers. We'll make several references to those papers during this conversation, so if you'd like to read them, find this podcast episode on the Modern War Institute website and follow the links included there. A couple notes before we get into the discussion. First, we had a lot of help in organizing this episode from both TRADOC and, in particular, TRADOC's Mad Scientist program. They recently launched a blog. It's called the Mad Scientist Laboratory. It's easy to find. You can Google it and it's worth checking out to see the work they're doing on the future of warfare. And finally, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, let's get to the conversation. TRADOC sort of owns a big part of this um, problem set, if you can call it, that sort of forecasting out uh, what the, the future operating environment is going to look like and what that's going to mean in terms of our changes, uh, materiel changes, uh, equipment changes, training changes, things, things of that nature. I wonder if one of you can kind of uh, give kind of a high level broad assessment about the major changes that we think are going to define the operating environment over the next uh, you know, 30 plus years. Okay, sure, I'll, uh, I'll start with that. Um, if you read our the the piece that that uh, we put out, the operational environment and the changing character of future warfare, um, I think it's it's a good place to start to sort of look at that problem set. And really, what that piece does is it it takes a look at where we see the world going today, in terms of not just the political military issues of the day, the the um, economic issues, the you know, the, the whole dime kind of equation, if you will, but also what we're starting to see in terms of technology and technology development, and not just the capabilities of this technology, but how fast it's coming. And not just how fast it's coming, but how it interrelates with each other, this idea of, of convergence between these different technologies. To essentially lay out um, a, a, an equation of what we think about the future, and the piece does that by, by looking at two separate sets of drivers. And the first driver essentially says or argues that the world is changing, and it's changing because of those, those factors that we just discussed. It's changing who we are. It's changing what we think about. It's changing how we define success. It's changing how, in, in the words of, of my, my friend here, Dave Fastabend, how we live, prosper, um, doing this from from memory <laughs> think <laughs> think create, and create um and and the like so all of this coming together is is a redefinition of sort of change it's changing our lives and changing who we are and as a result it's changing those those dime issues so the second set of drivers takes this idea of change and says hey this this change is not just limited to these spheres but it's really has a change for how we think about the character of warfare Warfare itself will change because of, of these same kinds of, of trends and, and issues. And that's really where I think the paper starts pointing. It's this idea of these, these two drivers then leading us to sort of a, a, a new idea and a new understanding of, of where, 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 where warfare is going. Um, and then again, um, what that means for, uh, for the Army and, and, and the nation moving forward. Okay. There are there have been a number of um, terms I think thrown out there uh, in an effort to um, 
kind of conceptualize this in a, in a, in a pithy way. I think in the paper sites, hyperactive battlefield, the new extended battlefield, the compressed battlefield. Um, one of the things that you notice is that there are um, some contradictions in these, you know, a battlefield that's at once extended and compressed. I wonder if you can talk about that, if whether or not that's going to be kind of a defining feature moving forward. Sure, John. This is David. I when I I started to research, uh, you know, the, the nature of future engagements, it was both interesting and amusing to me that that people were seeing the same phenomenology and coming to different conclusions, at least at the label surface, that on the, the surface of it, it appears to be quite, you know, contradictory. Uh, Unified Quest products produced a paper called the Hyperactive Battlefield, wherein they described advanced technologies that enable dramatically faster, more, more intense and lethal operations. The Army University Press established a website devoted to the future of war called the, the New Extended Battlefield. But then the Army Marine Corps Warfighter Talks produced a briefing that uh, had the same type of cause and effect linkages, linkages and said this is actually a, uh, a compressed battlefield. So that they took the linkages and showed their compression rather than the geographical extension. And then uh, the most recently published TRADOC pamphlet on uh, functional concept for movement maneuver described a, a hyperactive environment. So rather than get caught into the, the maelstrom of all these terms, which we're looking at basically the same type of phenomenology and coming to, to wildly different conclusions with respect to how to label it, we decided to just say, look, the nature of engagements is advanced. They're advanced in the sense that they are compressed in time, so they're faster. They're extended in space. They're far more lethal. They are more routinely interconnected across the multiple domains of air, land, sea, space, and cyber. And they're also interactive across the multiple dimensions of conflict. And by dimensions, I mean the physical dimension, the informational dimension, and even the moral dimension of uh, beliefs and values. So what does that look like then in, in practice? Um, I think in, in, in the advanced battle space or advanced engagements paper, it goes on after kind of describing those things, the compression of time, extension of space and what have you, to identify some competitions. Uh, I wonder if you can talk about that a little bit. Sure. I'll... Uh... The interesting thing about the advanced engagements paper, I think, is that we took a what I would describe as an inductive approach. We said, look, you can look at the nature of these advanced engagements and from the, the characteristics of those engagements, induce some some broader principles. So one of the, the first principles we induced is this idea of this contest between competing reconnaissance and strike complexes. Remember, we're, we're estimating and forecasting a future that's, that's characterized by, by lots of competitions, but particularly one of the things that the United States has to prepare for is, is a competition between peer competitors. And, and that's something that's very hard for people to get their minds around. You'll tell them, you know, you're in a peer competitor contest, and they'll go, yeah, but we're going to have technical supremacy and you go, no, not really, <laughs> not if it's a real peer competition. So speaking to the, the, the nature of these competitions, uh, let's talk first about the, the finder versus hider competition. There's been a lot of uh, discussion and literature out there about the ubiquity of, of sensors and the ubiquity of what we would just in general call finders. It's not just sensor devices, but it's also uh, commercial imagery surfaces that now routinely photograph and, and publish virtually every square inch of the world surface, uh, and increasingly mature Internet of Things, uh, unlimited processing power to take in all this data. So we foresee a battle space where, where finders are going to generate an unprecedented level of global transparency. And so 
where there's finders, there's also hiders. Uh, but our estimate is it's going to be rather difficult to hide. And some of the things we we quit doing a while back are, are going to come back because we're going to have to figure out a way to to recover the art of camouflage and, and deception and make it kind of a, a cross-domain obscuration problem. But finders versus hiders is a, is a dominant competition. And the reconnaissance strike contest, another competition, and it gets to the, the strike dimension of it, is this competition between strikers versus shielders. There's a lot of talk today about uh, the increasing range, lethality, and precision of of all types of systems that, that can strike kinetic weapon, weapons, hypersonic weapons, hyperkinetic munitions, railguns, directed energy cyber. All of these things have the ability to, to strike, in some cases, uh, at global ranges. But uh, if you imagine that future and take it to its logical conclusion, it's hard to imagine a, uh, a peer competitor that can tolerate losing uh, so much, regardless of, of where it is. And so this inevitably is going to rise, give rise, and we see some evidence already, to systems that shield. And these can be uh, radars, rail guns, uh, dispersal methods. So this, there will be this competition between strikers versus shielders. And then finally, there's going to be a, uh, well, I, sh I should not say finally, I should say next, there's going to be a competition between uh, dormancy, movement, and dispersal. If you're in competitions like this, uh, there's several things you can do. Some people say, we're going to have to keep moving. Uh, but that assumes that you can move fast enough that the enemy's uh, reconnaissance strike cycle is can't keep up with you. That's not necessarily true. It's unproven. So movement is one solution. Uh, dispersal is is another solution. However, that means you need to have enough to be able to spread it around, and that you'll be able to spread it in places that are, are difficult to detect. And then finally, another potential solution is dormancy, where you not only disperse and hide, but you go completely dormant. You're completely passive with respect to uh, uh, emissions. This is going to lead to another competition, which is, you know, the, the race for complex urban terrain. It's, it's kind of interesting that today we view urban ops, dense urban ops in particular, as a place we don't want to go if we can avoid it. I would not be surprised if in the future we don't see a, uh, a, a race for urban terrain because urban terrain is where you're going to have the ability to hide. It's where you're going to have the ability for uh, overhead cover. And uh, it's going to be something that uh, people are going to, to fight for rather than fight to avoid. And, and so the, the end result of all this is that the recon strike complex of the future is not going to be what we – we see it now so much. It's, it's going to be more lethal. It's going to be uh, incredibly fast. I'm not so sure it's going to be more complex than what we have now because uh, there's some interesting discussions ongoing about how to make the future recon strike complex, and I'll, I'll use a $50 word on you here, disintermediated. And this is not a word you can look up. You have to define it yourself. But uh, Best kind. <laughs> best kind, right. Disintermediation, I, I, th I think the best way to describe it would, would be like the, the, the cell phone system we have today. If you're going to drive from, from Fort Eustis to, to California, you don't sit down and look at the map and, and look at which companies own all the cell towers. You know your phone is going to be able to talk to any cell tower along the way, and you should be in communication almost the entire way. That's because our phone system is built on a series of, of towers and standards and well-understood protocols so that it doesn't matter who made your phone, and it doesn't matter who built the cell tower. As long as you're within range, it's going to see you, sense you, 
alert you and you'll, you'll get the call. The problem we have today with these recon strike complexes is often we, we ask for them and we buy them when we build them based on a set of very discrete protocols where only a certain sensor can talk to a, a certain communication link, which in turn can talk to a certain shooter. And the problem with that approach is as, as these systems proliferate, it, they get very, very hard to manage. And uh, it's a problem that doesn't scale very well. And so there's discussion now uh, in the communication circles about building an entirely different type of uh, communications architecture built on layers rather than linkages. So there could be a sensor layer where any sensor can, can sense a target and pass it on to adjacent sensors in the same layer. And then there'll be a communication layers whereby any communication node can talk to any sensors within range and pass data. And then a, a, a shooting layer whereby they can take the data and, and pass the relevant data to the, the, the best shooter. So, you know, any sensor best shooter is a, is a disintermediated approach to solving the complexities of the recon strike complex. I, I want to kind of bring together a few things that you said that you talked about there. Uh, one was your reference to dense urban terrain. Um, I have a colleague at the Modern War Institute, uh, John Spencer, who has written about the, you know, the fact that in the past uh, cities we fought for cities uh we're increasingly fighting in cities uh war is a human endeavor so it, it you know it's no surprise that we're going to be fighting it amongst humans in this case you know millions and millions of civilians potentially um, but if war is a human endeavor i also you talked about the compression and time um which you know sort of is going to lead i think uh, i think this is what you're what you're implying is that it's going to lead to more and more rapid decision cycles things like that uh, at what point does that supersede maybe the human brain's capacity to operate within that the the time frames that the battle space is going to um uh, require and 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 thereby require greater uh unmanned uh warfighters it's, it's funny you bring that question up because we were, David and I were actually chatting a little bit about it uh, before you started recording. And, um, you know, one of the, the, the key trends that we talk about <clears throat> in the, the broader OE piece, which certainly has, uh, is also then referenced in the advanced engagement piece, um, is this idea of, of, of uh, certainly artificial intelligence, autonomy, robotics, and what all of this means when they're all converged together and this ability to act at speeds um, much, much greater than, than perhaps we deal with today. And I think some of it will be required um, based upon the situations that we find ourselves in. You mentioned dense urban, and I think that's actually a, a great example. But this idea that we're going to have to converge all three in order to make quick decisions to come up with fleeting windows of opportunity. Um, it's, it's one of the things we talk about in multi-domain battle writ large, and, and we've, I think, thought a lot about it at the big picture level. How do you create these windows of opportunity in a multi-domain manner? Um, when you really start thinking about it at the base level and perhaps at the tactical level in a dense urban situation where you're acting, um, as you said, in and among the population, this idea that you will, will be able to do things quicker and faster, I think in some ways, um, is really one of the, 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 the key factors that, that allows us to even contemplate doing it. Um, this idea that, that you can quickly almost remove, um, in, in some cases, the idea of doubt um, or, or fear, if you will, of, of, of actually having to do this is, I think, a, a really important issue. Um, and I think we talk about it a lot in the, in the different pieces that, we, that, that we're talking about here. Um, this notion that the convergence of AI and robotics will give us, and then autonomy, will give us um, options that perhaps we don't have today. I don't know if you want to. Yeah, I think you, you covered that well. I, it, it relates to, to one of the, the observations we came up with, and that is how in the physical dimension of conflict, 
I think you could make a strong case for defense becoming the, the stronger form of war. And the reason is because you can detect things so easily and anything that, that moves is going to be readily detected and therefore reasonably readily engaged. And so in order to, to uh, seize the initiative and, and change conditions, you have to move, you have to, you have to attack. And so in the, in the physical dimension, defense is going to be relatively advantaged because you can hide perhaps in dense urban terrain, you can disperse, you'll have a transparent battlefield, you can see people moving and you can engage them. However, in the information dimension of conflict, I think the offense is somewhat advantaged because in the information dimension of conflict, you have to uh, infiltrate an enemy's network, you have to place uh, We'll call them payloads, if you if you want to call them that, that uh, you're going to try to protect and activate at the appropriate time. You're going to have to do a lot of reconnaissance and research. So the information domain is advantaged uh, with respect to, to offense. So I think operational art in the future will be combinations, yeah. whereby the, the superior peer competitor is going to try to set conditions in the information domain and once he has those conditions where he wants them, then kind of act quickly in the physical domain to, to rapidly make some advantages and then kind of reset his own defense in the physical dimension in order to preserve his gains. That's actually something we talked, I think, uh, David and I in, in, in some detail when we were working through some of the issues on this paper, this this idea that that information is the outlier in this, right? This yeah. idea that um, the defensive is going to be stronger in the future for all of the reasons that we've talked about with this this one exception, um, this idea of, of information and the ability to, to set conditions in ways that we haven't really thought about, um, you know, using different ways of delivering it, be it cyber, be it, be it by one of the more conventional domains. Information is that, that one piece that sort of expands the battlefield writ large, it, it, and it it puts a new emphasis in some ways on the the moral side of the fight, or or the the spiritual, I suppose, if if you want to get that way as well. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, I haven't come to any conclusions yeah. on whether or not the 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 moral dimension of, of conflict has an advantage with respect to offense or defense, but I think. Because the information dimension does, we're we're probably one step closer to what people believe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's it's interesting as we look at these these conflicts and when we we go through different war games and we um, play out various scenarios and and we talk about things like gray zone and the competition phase, the conflict phase, and then the return to competition phase. Um, mm. You know, you can you can see how it, critically important that information realm becomes. And again, it does give you, I think, some some flexibility. So I, it's a, it's an interesting concept that I think we've talked a lot about. I wanna I wanna ask you about uh, you know in the post war post World War II era, we've seen um, escalating costs for our major weapon systems, major vehicles, major platforms. You know, fighter planes they cost tens of thousands of dollars to build. Uh, in during World War II, are now you're talking tens and approaching a hundred million dollars. Uh, per copy, uh, as we've we've seen that is this future battle space uh, advantage the uh, big, expensive, and exquisite, or the small, cheap, and replaceable? That's a great question, <laughs> and again, I think I think the answer is probably a little of both. Um, I think there will always be room for certain exquisite capabilities. But one of the things that we've seen as we, we think and we talk about this kind of warfare, particularly in terms of how destructive it can be, how lethal it can be, and, and not just lethal, but how quickly lethal it, it can be, um, there certainly is an argument for the small and, and the replaceable. And I think particularly as you move forward on the, the time continuum, and when you start thinking about the way we divided up sort of the big picture look of the future, you know, the first one into the, the era of accelerated human progress 
where we start being contested in all domains, and then moving forward into the era of, of contested equality where, where we are basically on par with our adversaries, I think it's going to, we're, what we're going to see are going to be combinations of the two um, in, in, in an attempt for one side or the other to gain some kind of relative advantage in some spot that will give them an edge in one of the domains. Um, so I think what you will see will be sort of complex combinations of the two. Um, certain, certainly, I think some nations will, will have leads, you know, in, in, in certain technological areas. Maybe one side's better at ISR. Maybe one side's better at sensing. Maybe one side has an advantage in ground systems. Who knows? Um, and and from within those from within those different um, combinations, you'll probably see ranges of capabilities at varying cost levels. But I think it's the it's the actor who who's able to harness the combination to create the effects that they're going to need on these battlefields most effectively that will probably be able to open those multi-domain windows um, for as ever a fleeting a time as, as is necessary to gain the advantage that they need. I think that actor will be the one that, that proves to be the most successful. You discussed, um, I mean, you, you've introduced, I guess it's been kind of a constant theme is this talk of, of domains and multiple domains. Uh, in the advanced engagements paper, uh, there's a section on the death of domain dominance. I wonder if you can expand on that. Sure, I'll uh, I'll take that on. The so when we did the induction of from advanced engagements to to what it means for for warfare writ large, we we had tactical implications and operational implications and strategic implications. Uh, when I wrote about the death of domain dominance, it was an operational implication. And I, I was struck by how, you know, going back to World War II, you know, operational art was really about taking your advantages in a particular domain and applying it to the character of warfare and, and leveraging your advantage to enable success in the other domains. I mean, multi-domain battle is not a brand new thing. We, we just recently thought of. And so you can look at, you know, MacArthur's Island Hopping campaign and, and, and the, in the Pacific where he would, you know, capture an Island, extend the air umbrella, establish air dominance. Then they'd go in and capture the next Island. It was the Island hopping solution. It, it, we, we would speak. And when most of, our careers, we've spoken of maritime supremacy and aerospace supremacy. You don't speak too much about land supremacy <laughs> because that's very hard hard to generate. But I, I think talk of domain dominance in the future is going to be very limited. But you, you just can't generate it. And it's not because your peer competitors are going to have competitive capabilities within each domain is because these capabilities can extend their effects from one domain to another. I mean, you know, the Russians are perceived to have, you know, aerospace, I'll make up the term here, equity, if you will, particularly, you know, close to their homeland. It's not done with their air force. It's, it's done with yeah. a ground-based air defense system. Uh, and so this, this, Note, this notion of domain dominance, I think, is, is going to uh, either slowly or, or rapidly uh, encounter its own demise. And uh, it's, it's, it's going to be very difficult to, to dominate in a domain. Now, people are still going to try to do it, and you, ask, you probably have to do it in order to, to generate success. But when and where you do it, your, your window of dominance is going to be uh, – elusive and it's going to be temporary and you have to be prepared to take advantage of it very quickly because it's unlikely you're going to be able to uh, to maintain it for any length of time so you, you've got to plan on it you've got to accomplish it you've got to exploit it and then you have to be prepared for, for what comes next because you're going to be going up against peer competitors that have their own tricks up their sleeves and and, and they're going to figure out how to react to what you did and uh, how to present you with a series of dilemmas as well. 
you said that in this paper you kind of broke it out into strategic, operational, and tactical implications. Um, if we are thinking of this sort of um, not just multi-domain battle as a concept, but but a convergence of domains uh, in this future battle space from a strategic perspective, that's something that you can account for. From an operational perspective, or at the operational level, you know it's something that we have I think done okay already you know when our we've we have joint force commanders who have commanded operational forces um, of you know multiple services uh, that's sort of as a matter of routine almost at a tactical level what does that mean what does it mean for a, a, a an army or a marine corps ground force company commander uh, to be fighting this battle space that that is where the the domains are no longer as bifurcated as maybe they they are today well, the, uh, there's, there's lots of competitions in the future character of warfare. And, and one of the competitions we haven't talked about yet is this impetus to, to, to consolidate and, and to connect versus the impetus to, to disaggregate and, and, and disconnect. So, so this is a, these are two countervailing trends and and the impact of those trends will be on on this contest to communicate if you will joint operations don't succeed unless you have really good communications unless you've got great uh, command and control relationships and so the way I I address this problem in this paper as I, I say, you know, organizing for joint combined armed synergy, how low can you go? So some people, will, you know, they, they kind of look at you with a weird look when you, when, when they, you know, propose, well, maybe, you know, battalion commanders, are they going to be joint commanders or company commanders? Are they going to be joint commanders? And, you know, my own instinct is, Probably not. That that seems pretty low, but it it, it, it definitely might go lower than than division, or in, and it and it very well probably could go down to the uh, commander level, and so this is something that has to be explored by experimentation and and uh, and and testing, because if if you're not if you're, if you're not going to rely on communications and if you're in a, a, a communication competition, if you will, you've got to be prepared to, to have things effectively co-located if you want to attempt to, to generate synergy from them. It's, it's the only other way I, I would know how to do it. So you either are working with assured communications across a, a widely distributed area, or you've got things more or less clustered together and you're doing face-to-face -face communication. But that's going to depend on how you configure your battle space, what your battlefield geometry looks like, et cetera. If I could just add on real quick as well, one of the things that we've seen in some of the experimentation and games that we've looked at is this idea of how fleeting these windows of opportunity are. And I think we got to that um, you know, in, in, in some of the discussion we've already had. But in some ways, it becomes a very tactical problem because it very well may be that that most tactical of units is the only place where you can actually determine whether the window is actually opened. And it actually creates some really interesting, I think, concepts or ideas or at least rabbit holes to explore as to what that really means. You know, what if it is that at the battalion level that that is the only spot that you can you can see whether an op a window that you want to open is opened. Um, or, or God, what if it's even worse than that? What if it's down to the company level or the, <laughs> or the squad level? I mean, you just you, you can actually start getting down some of those rabbit holes as you start thinking about literally how, how fleeting some of the windows you have to open in a, 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 uh, an area where we have multi-domain competition really is. Um, so it, it really does add sort of a I think a, a, a new area we really have to explore in terms of what is all of what does all of this really mean? Almost like multi-domain BDA really quickly in order to take advantage of it, so you get the effect that you you really need. Um, so I think that's something that we certainly need to explore probably in more depth. 
in the in the other paper in the uh, changing character future warfare paper there's a reference made to the four plus one uh, threats I think it's it's pretty intuitive I think it's pretty it's it doesn't take a huge leap in logic to to be able to see a future conflict, say a generation out, with China unfolding in this battle space as you're defining it. Um, same goes, I think, for Russia. To it's maybe a little bit harder, but still not very difficult to to think of how uh, a conflict with North Korea or Iran would also be sort of defined by the characteristics of the battle space that you're describing. What about the plus one? What about the radical ideologies? And transnational criminal organization. What you know, we've you know the types of conflicts that we would have over the past twenty years called small wars, or, or you know, well beyond that. Um, how are how is this going to change, or is it not going to change the way that we deal with those sorts of threats? I think it absolutely changes the way that we deal with those those sorts of threats, um, namely because, like everybody else, they're adapting to the same operational environment that we all face. Um, you know, I've, I've spent the last 10 years working the counterterrorism mission, and, and essentially the counterterrorism mission has really become something bigger than simply stopping plots. Um, it's become dealing with organizations like ISIS, which has its very own command structure, um, which in some ways are similar and other ways are different than, than a military organization, yet they have to operate within the same domains. And we see them gaining multi-domain capabilities, you know, perhaps not on the level of a, of a nation state, but in some really unique and creative ways that create multi-domain windows for them. Um, you know, the idea of, of ISIS using um, uh, off commercial off-the-shelf technology to, to use quadcopters to air deliver munitions. Um, I, spent ten, I spent several years in charge of the, the IC effort to, to counter ISIS and their chemical weapons capabilities. I mean, these are these are not capabilities that you you uh, you know your your grandfather's terrorist group had and were, were able to use and were able to combine. Um, you know, air, ground, WMD. They certainly have cyber capabilities. They have information capabilities, and that's just one group. You know, start thinking about some of the other groups that we might end up in in competition with. A group like Lebanese Hezbollah which is tied into nation states and, and can actually get sort of more sophisticated capabilities across multi-domains. So I think, our, I think we, we will need to consider multi-domain approaches against these enemies because they'll they will certainly consider multi-domain approaches against us. They're doing it today and I think the lessons that they're probably going to learn from fights in places like Mosul or Raqqa or you know, uh, in Syria, um, will drive them down some of these, these same conclusions um, in terms of what they can do in different domains, how they can bring them together, and how they can increase their strategic, operational, and tactical reach. I wonder if you can, uh, you know, forecasting uh, the, the, the future evolutionary trajectory of technological development is, um, is, is no easy task. We'll just put it that way. But I wonder if you look out over the next 15, 20 years, what are the major technological game changers that you think are going to increasingly come into, come into play in the operating environment? Well, uh, we did a, a paper on the strategic security environment where we looked at technology in a broad sense. And we basically broke the, the trends down into, into five subcomponents. So on the hardware side, there's something that's so obvious to us we didn't mention it, which is information technology, which is, yeah. we're so immersed in it, we don't even think about it, think about it but that's, that's definitely gonna change. And we, we did mention, you know, robotics and autonomous systems. You know, we did mention additive manufacturing and, and nanotechnology. And also the Internet of Things, because everything is becoming networked. So that's those are hardware trends. On the software trends, uh, we've got artificial intelligence. Ian mentioned quantum computing. Uh, there's also something that I know you guys have talked about, you know, big data, and and blockchains, which is getting increased recognition lately. It's a fundamentally different approach to to how you. Uh, basically keep track of things, if you will. 
there's also something called waveware. So, you know, waveware refers to uh, directed energy weapons and also rail guns, which use basically wave effects to, to launch their missiles. In the category of mindware, there's neuroscience, it's just really ad advancing, and also decision science as far as how people understand how they make decisions and, and what they can do to improve those decisions. And finally, Bioware has got at least three important components. It's got biotechnology, the interface between humans and machines, and of course, how do you augment humans? The other important aspect to think is it's not just these capabilities themselves, but it's their convergence that drives an even broader problem. It's this, this idea that an advance in you know human biological interface married with some advance in AI could create an even broader capability that wasn't imagined by either of the folks who did the original innovation. So this idea of convergence is also something I think that will will certainly drive the future and, and really be an exponential force multiplier, if you will, for this technological development. In that paper, it, it, um, you, you talk about convergence, um, convergence of thought and technology, and specifically it said it, it, you expect it to erode U.S. post-Cold War advantages. Is that, is that the way that you frame this, that you conceptualize it as um, something that erodes our advantages, or is it also at the same time maybe a set of opportunities? You know, to be honest, that's uh, a fair point. It, it's, it's probably both. One of the things that, that we've seen, and it, it sort of gets back into the, to the way that we're, we're projecting the future from, from the present, is that while we have been very much busy fighting a counterinsurgency fight over the, the, the last 17 years or so, our enemies have caught up with us to a point. And while we've been investing in a specific fight, they've been investing in, in sort of broader technological bases. So, so really the convergence of all of this has given them a chance to catch up. So the fundamental question is, is where do we go from there? Are we able to take advantage of what we have in terms of technological expertise and, and a penchant for societal innovation and, and harvest it and use it uh, to our advantage? Hopefully the answer is yes. But the problem that we, we see is that due to the interconnectivity of the world, due to the speed of human interaction, due to the, the interconnectivity of scientific progress, it's awfully hard to develop and maintain an absolute advantage in, it, in any of this for, for any given period. Um, so it, what happens is you know, whoever makes a breakthrough first, rivals will catch up relatively quickly um, because of the speed of human interaction. So... Um, it's, it's, it's almost, it almost becomes, how do you use this? How do you conceive of it? That really maybe becomes the window of opportunity. Uh, that's all fascinating, fascinating and, and, uh, almost a little bit anxiety inducing at the same time. <laughs> um, I wonder if, and maybe the best way to frame this is sort of as a dot no PF question, but where, if this is if this is the shape of the future battle space, where are the most critical gaps that we, the U.S. military, the U.S. Army, need to fill? You know, I mean, so, so the easy answer, well, it's, it's, it's an easy approach to an answer, but I think it's the real answer, is, is certainly this is a dot mil PF problem. Um, this, this future that we're, we're talking about certainly has an effect on every every single one of those .mil PF issues across the board. Um, as an example, you know, one of the things that we found as, as we were doing this is that uh, the implications of this future that we talked about plays into so many di different areas. I'll give you one little vignette. We've been working very closely um, with the folks on the Army staff who are working on the installations of the future. What do they have to look like? And it's, it's funny, it you know, the, the, our meetings with them came just about the time that we, we finished this, this the first piece on the changing character of warfare. And it was pretty remarkable how, you know, they took a look at this and said, oh, my goodness, the, the future of our installations are, are going to be different than we realize, and we have to take some of this into effect. So we've been working very closely with them to sort of say, what does it need? Are we talking about 
an installation of the future that has to take account for these trends? Is it a place that's going to have to have an additive uh, manufacturing capability to deal with its logistics issues? Is it going to be an installation, um, you know, that is able to meet the the personalized needs of the of the of the individual soldier in terms of human performance, in terms of um, yeah, you know their 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 health and and, and nutrition, and, uh, spiritual welfare, and all of this. So it's sort of been a sort of been an interesting perspective as we as we did this to just see how wide ranging this really is. But if I were going to answer this writ large, and I think David covered it early on, and then I'll I'll shut up and, and let him talk. Um, big the big idea here is the is is that the army has to imagine this. They have to understand that that the future is going to be different than the present or the recent past. And it's this idea that it really means something different when we're starting to think about peer and near peer adversaries. We really haven't had to imagine that kind of threat since 1945 in, in actuality and sort of the Cold War, at least in, a, a, in an intellectual framework. So this idea that we're actually going to be contested in multiple domains, I think, is, some, is that first step uh, towards, towards doing something about the, the, the problems that we see with this, this, this future operational environment. Well, uh, your question is extremely broad. And there's there's lots of ways you, you could answer it. Uh, I'll pick a couple, and if it doesn't scratch your itch, we can go back, and I'll I'll pick a couple more. But uh, let's just answer your question from the perspective of operational concepts. For uh, for, for one, you know, the Army has presented itself with a problem statement along the line of how does the Army advance the nation's interest and fight and win against increasingly capable threats that are able to wage high-end conventional warfare, hybrid warfare, terrorism, and below the threshold militarized competition, all within the envelope of an A2AD threat. And there's lots of ways that the Army needs to consider and explore how to do that. There's a lot of discussion today about multi-domain battle, you know, and so the, the fundamental notion of projecting land-based base power into all domains is, is really important. Uh, for all our hand-wringing over A2AD threats, I think the Army has, has fundamentally missed the most important aspect of it, and that that is our strategy, really. I mean, if you're forward-based, you know, why Why wouldn't we want to have land-based A2, AD capabilities that would negate sea surface or, or air travel within the range of these systems? You know, we are the status quo power. We are the ones that want to preserve it. This is really our operational approach. Uh, I think innovative approaches for mass and maneuver is another thing the Army needs to explore. This idea of disaggregation, dispersion, and then reaggregation, it's it's been written into joint concepts for I want to say many months, it's actually many years now, about how do you operate in an environment like this. But this is something the Army should should be thinking about it. This I this idea of uh, finders versus hiders and and the contest between recon, competing recon strike complexes, it's going to generate a, a, in my view, a somewhat unique battle space geometry where you're going to have certain places that you absolutely have to hold on to. I'm thinking in particular uh, seaports and, and, and airfields, and there are certain things you just cannot abandon. And so you're going to have to shield them. So you're going to have some concentrated areas that are shielded, and then you're going to have larger areas in between these shielded areas that are basically a, uh, an area where dormancy and maneuver are your best shot at survival. And so how do you, how do you disaggregate, disperse, and reaggregate in a, in, a, in a battle space like this? How do you do distributed but non-contiguous operations? 
uh, it's going to lead you very quickly to the idea of pulse logistics. You know, even when I was MNFI C3 in Iraq, it began to occur to me that we were using, we were always surprised that our logistics convoys got ambushed. But these were the, the convoys using doctrine, material, and capabilities that we developed for an era long ago and, and far away from that type of environment. We should not have been surprised at what was happening to our, our convoys. And so logistic convoys, logistic support is going to be very much a combined arms operation and whereby you're going to have to overtly plan when you resupply a unit that is in one of these protected bubbles. And you're going to have to get there. You're going to have to do it before their sustainment clock runs out and that restarts the clock for them. It's a fundamentally different way to, to do logistics. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot of manned, unmanned teaming. And uh, one of the things that's, that's happening today and has been happening for, for many years now is uh, the rate of technology progress with respect to kinetic energy is far outpacing the technology process with respect to passive protection. And uh, no one I've talked to can tell me when that phenomenon is going to reverse. And so I think we're in a, a place where we're going to have to accept pretty soon that we can't build a tank heavy enough to uh, to, to move and offer 100% protection. So this idea of having a, a tank that can't be defeated is is going to go the way of, of, of the push cavalry, I'm afraid. We're going to have to look at fundamentally new approaches to uh, combined arms warfare. Look, armor is going to be important. Uh, high velocity kinetic energy weapons are going to be important, but they don't have to necessarily be on the same platform. There's other trades we can make. And, you know, the, the classic trades are between mobility, survivability, uh, cost, quantity. And we're going to have to reevaluate those those trades. And then finally, I, I think if you look at some of the uh, some of the emerging technologies related to individual uh, air movement, you know, the, the classic example being the, the, the hover bike, I, I always get pretty interested when I read these stories about so and so has built a hover bike that can carry you know, 200 or 300 pounds, because 300 pounds to me sounds like the weight of a your average infantryman and his rucksack. And what if you could put an average infantryman and his rucksack on a hover bike like that and then go into a dense urban area mm -hmm. and to get to the top of the building, you simply get on your hover bike and, and up yeah. you go. And so it's, there's, there's no small amount of, uh, potential operational concepts that can help solve these problems. Okay. I, I, I want to, this is probably, we'll probably wrap up with this question, but uh, I kind of, I want to ask if each of you maybe can, um, can give me kind of one, you know, let's say big, bold idea, or maybe, maybe uh, a characteristic that you think is not necessarily captured by conventional wisdom, such as it is about the future battle space, something that you think is going to be uh, increasingly important, say, in the, you know, that 2035 to 2050 timeframe? You should come up with one other big idea, huh? <laughs> we didn't give you enough already. <laughs> I'll give it a swag. Uh, my, my first... When, I, when, when all was said and done and we started thinking about some of the implications and when I've, I started to take a look and participate in, again, some of the war games that we play, um, you know, one of, the, one of the things that just keeps coming back to me is if, if warfare is indeed going to be as fast and as lethal um, as, as we think it is, and when we start thinking about what the implications are for, for soldier and, and leadership development and how much time and effort 
energy cost we put into into training um, these these folks to make them the absolute best soldier and leader they can be, I become very worried very quickly about how fast we might expend them in, in, in some of this fight and sort of understanding what that means for the Army going forward. Um, how do you replenish losses in these engagements that become so fast, um, so lethal, at such extreme ranges? You know, the, the, the materiel side is the easy side of the equation. You can always build another tank or hover bike. Um, you know, but it's the, it's the people side of the equation that, that, makes, that worries me and I think leads us down this road to really start thinking about the idea of man-machine teaming and robotics and autonomy and how we can use that to try to mitigate some of these losses um, that, that, that you would take in, this, in such a lethal battle space. And then I just think reimagining, you know, sort of what these fights mean um, in general. It's it's awfully hard to think about waging a, a second world war under these conditions, you know, where you're you're involved in this. And I think I think you start ending up, you know, the studied German military history, and, and David and I were talking about this earlier. Earlier, this idea of these these Kabinettenkrieg, as the Germans would say, these small conflicts that are are fast have a result kind of return you to a status quo and then you see another one break out you know a couple years later because the issue wasn't resolved and sort of trying to get a handle over over what all of that means I think is is something that that I need to think more about but it's interesting I think because it it sort of takes the confluence of everything that we're seeing and and sort of understanding what it means and the implications and I I, I think that's something that that we as futurists owe we, we can't just take we can't just paint the picture of the future, and we can't just say this is what we think it's going to be. We have to really think long and hard about the implications um, and, and, and point them out and, and, and sort of say loudly and, hey, pay attention to this because it's important. These are things we, that we need to think through today to get ready for that, that future, which won't be as long away as it seems in the paper. That's a great point. And General Fastman? I like what Ian said, but I'm going to take a, a somewhat different tack. And, and to me, what's, what's particularly interesting is that I think uh, operational art's going to evolve beyond the, what we typically think of now as being in the physical dimension of conflict. And it's going to evolve and, and, and include the informational dimension and perhaps even the, the moral dimension. I mean, it, it, traditionally, military commanders are, are just concerned with the, the physics of the problem, and they work in, in the physical domain. And, and, and look, that's a tough problem, and it, it, was, it was hard to do. But, but with respect to the information domain, I mean, when I grew up, there were only three networks, and they all went off the air at 1130 at night. With, with the plane of the Star Spangled Banner. And so the information domain was, was not that hard to deal with, and we knew we had other people dealing with it, and it wasn't our problem. Uh, now you have military commanders who are wrestling with uh, information as a tool of warfare, and they're trying to figure out how to incorporate it into their, into their operations. I think it won't be too long once we make progress in, in both reacting to and in using the information dimension of conflict, we'll start thinking about the moral dimension. And, and the, the moral dimension deals with what people know and believe. And it, it relates to, to narrative. So in, in the past, you know, commanders used to worry about warheads and, and nukes, and, and now they worry about networks. I think in the future, they're gonna worry a lot about narrative. And that's going to have huge implications for our country. Our country is not built like that. Our country is built on the premise that uh, only the politicians, if anyone, actually it, it goes back beyond that. It's, it's look, what we know and believe is, is in the Constitution. And don't screw with it. Uh, and the Supreme Court is there to stop you if you do. And uh, it's hard for me to imagine us being successful in the future unless we're willing to uh, 
to consider who we are as a people and, and, and how we deal with the rest of the world. Because it's not necessarily true that, that the best culture is going to win in a future conflict. It is necessarily true that the, the culture that's most effective at waging conflict has a good shot. <laughs> and, and that's something we're going to have to think about real hard. And, and it's, it's, it's not too soon to start doing it. Well, thank you both very much. This has been uh, a pretty fascinating conversation uh, for me, and, and, and I trust our listeners will enjoy it as well. Thank you. All right. All thanks. Right. Thanks, John. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. I want to thank the TRADOC Mad Scientist program once again for their help with this episode. And one social media plug, follow MWI on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, and stay up to date on the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. All right, thanks again.